Be seated. It has been three months since the pain started. The wait is finally over. You make it to your appointment on time and wait. <laughs> finally, with heart racing and palms sweating, a nurse calls your name and escorts you to the room. The room is freezing cold. Why are they always freezing cold? And the lights in the room are brighter than the noonday sun. The nurse hands you a piece of cloth and she tells you to take everything off and put on an ugly-looking robe. She exits the room and you sigh. For the next five minutes, you struggle to tie the piece of cloth in your rear, but you eventually get it on. You sit on the table and you anxiously wait for the knock. The knock comes. The doctor enters. He examines you, and then he says words that you've been dreading for months. I think we need to do more tests. What I'm seeing does not look good. Where does your heart go in that moment? What runs through your thoughts? Lord, why? Well, this scenario, though scary, it really pales in comparison to what Job went through. I think most all of you here are familiar. You've read it. You understand from reading it what happened to Job. Job suffered a great deal. And I... I feel bad for Job. When I can put myself in his shoes, I really feel bad for him. Why? Because Job made all of the right decisions. He took care of his family, physically and spiritually. He lived within his means. He built his wealth little by little over time. Yet he suffered financially, Physically, 
emotionally, mentally, and relationally. Every aspect of his life he lost, except his life. And I think, as I've been reflecting on it, it's much, much worse to lose everything except your life than it is to lose your life. Because when you lose your life as a believer, you gain glory. When you lose everything except your life, you gain nothing but suffering. And the nagging question I have, if I really care about what happened to Job, and if we move back Beyond this story and what this story is communicating, if I really care about the suffering that I see in my life and in this world, I ask, why is the suffering? Why is this happening? Why do I deserve it? Why do they deserve this suffering? It's what we really want to know. It's what we really ponder and think about. As many of you know, I have the privilege to travel to Sierra Leone on a regular basis to equip under-resourced pastors. Pastors who will never in a million years be able to have access to a basic Bible education. That's why I go. But let me tell you something about these pastors that I teach and that I hug. They suffer more than anything I've ever seen in my life. The suffering is real. And in my heart of hearts, every time I go there, I ask, God, why? Why do these people suffer so much? What did they do to deserve all of this? And I wish... I wish I could snap my fingers and make it all right. I wish I could fix the underlying systems of corruption and injustice in the country. But I can't. And that's not what God has called me to do. You see, when suffering strikes, we look for answers. We look for justice. We want to know why suffering happens to our friends, to our loved ones. What did they do to deserve this? As one has said, and this is so true, 
It is not suffering that destroys a man. It is suffering without a purpose that destroys a man. After seven days of silence, Job's friends finally open their mouths and they offer a reason why Job is suffering. Obviously, they have good intentions, but what we come to see is they totally miss the boat. Well over half of the book of Job is a discussion between Job and his friends. Well over half. And the arguments between Job and his friends run from chapter 4 through chapter 27. With, you could say, some closing remarks in statements by Job in chapters 28 through 31. And then another friend... A fourth friend enters the scene in chapter 32. And as I said in my first sermon, I've mapped out roughly about 12 sermons in the book of Job, 12 messages in this book. We we do not have time to go through each chapter in detail. And in many ways, in many ways we don't need to. We don't need to for our purposes, for a sermon, for a message, because the speeches are repetitive. They're, they're, by and large, repetitive. In fact, you could boil the speeches down to one basic argument that the friends are making. There's one basic argument that they're saying. And here is the essential argument of Job's Friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that is repeated over and over again in various ways and with different nuance, but essentially this argument from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 27. Here's the argument. God is just and God is righteous. He is fair in all that he does. So the friends believed in an all-powerful God who is just and righteous and fair in all that he does. And therefore, because God is just and right, God must punish sin. He must punish what isn't right. He must punish infractions against what is right. He must punish the bad. For him to do otherwise would not be fair. He would not be a fair God who rules the world. And, now here's where it comes to Job. Since you are suffering, Job, it must be, be because you have sinned and therefore you are being punished for your sins. So that's the basic argument that Job's friends are making of why Job is suffering. This is the reason why. We see this right out of the gates. If you're in 
chapter 4. Look with me at Job chapter 4. And in my Bible, I have this heading at the beginning of Job chapter 4. It says, Eliphaz, colon, innocent do not suffer. The innocent do not suffer. That is his argument. So look at verse 7. Remember now, Job, who ever perished being innocent? Or were the upright destroyed? The implied answer to this question is no one. If you were innocent, Job, you would not be suffering. But you're not innocent. You've sinned. Look with me at chapter 5, what Eliphaz says. Chapter 5, the heading, God is just. This is their argument. So look with me at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But as for me, speaking to Job, I would seek God. And I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Why would anyone place their cause before God? Because God is just. He is going to do the right thing. So place your cause before him. And this is exactly why Job is suffering. He can't place his cause before God. Or he can, and he's going to be punished because he has sinned. Eliphaz even goes on to say that Job's suffering is not not just punishment, but it's it's discipline of the Lord. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, now, happy is the man who, whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Lord, the discipline of the Almighty. Now, does that verse ring a bell to you? Have you heard that verse before? If you know your Bible, Eliphaz's words are quoted as Scripture in Hebrews 12, verse 5. And it says this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So here's my question. Is these friends, is their basic argument Is it true? Is it true? Well, let's answer that question. The Bible is clear that in the book of Genesis, that because of Adam and Eve's sin, Suffering entered the world. Suffering entered the world because of sin. 
Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. All suffering is the result of sin. Suffering is the result of the fall. Now having said this, let me clarify and a very important point, really the, the, the entire sort of hinge or linchpin of this whole message. All suffering is the result of sin. All human suffering that we see in the world. The suffering that I see in Sierra Leone, the suffering that we experience here, personally, as a nation, whatever, it's all a result of sin. All suffering is a result of sin, but not all suffering is the result of sin. Now, I hope that bothers you a little bit, that statement, because I just contradicted myself. But not really, because I'm equivocating on the words I'm using, and I did it to grab your attention. What do I mean? What I mean is this. All suffering in this life is a result of sin in general. But not all suffering is the result of sin in particular. What I mean by this is that you cannot necessarily draw a straight line from someone's personal sin, the sin that they have done, to the suffering that they are going through. Now, this point is, is illustrated by Jesus forcefully and powerfully. And I want you to see this in John chapter 9. So keep your finger in the book of Job and turn to John chapter 9. It's page 1070. John chapter 9. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, that is, as Jesus, passed by, he saw man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? In other words, who sinned that he would suffer in this way? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what is the point? The point is it's not because of the personal sin of the son or the parents for why this man is suffering his blindness from blindness. Now, this is one example, and, and I'm hesitant, and we should be hesitant to draw a universal principle or rule from one example, but at least in John 9 is one place where we have suffering that is not the result of personal sin. 
But I don't think this is the only place where we see this. I believe we see this in the book of Job. So turn back there with me to the book of Job. Page 518, if you're using a pew Bible. And I want you to notice something. The narrator makes it clear that Job's suffering is not a result of his personal sin. Look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And after Job sinned, even after he sinned, or even after, not, excuse me, not that he, after he sinned, but after he suffered. After Job suffered, he did not sin. Verse 22 of chapter 1. It says, through all of this, this is after he had suffered, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And verse 10 of chapter 2, after Job loses not just all of his possessions and his family, but he loses his health. At this point, Job has lost everything except his life. And look what it says in verse 10. He's speaking to his wife and he says, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So here's the point. The narrator is making this point. He's making this, this clear about Job that Job is not suffering because of his personal sin. Let me give you a real-life example that I think will help you to understand this point a little better. A few months ago, um, I learned uh, a friend of mine, he's a pastor in Kansas, and um, I learned of a very, very tragic, horrible situation that he is going through in his church. So here's the situation. Here's what happened. It's just unbelievable. Um, he has a family in his church. There's a mom and a dad and a son and a daughter. One day, the son decides to get his father's handgun. And the son decides that he's going to pick up the gun and he's going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, that he's going to point it at his sister. And not only does he point the gun at his sister, he, he pulls the trigger. And yes, the gun was loaded. And he killed his sister. Now, I can't even begin to imagine the suffering that that family is going through. And my friend, he's a pastor of this church, he's, he's been ministering to this family. Um, this happened three years ago. He's ministering for three years. And they're still dealing with the pain. Now here's my question. Who sinned to bring on all this suffering? Are we going to start pointing fingers in this situation? 
that according to my knowledge, the son had no idea the gun was loaded. It was an accident. But, but even in that, you, you question why, how? So the question I have for you is, are Job's friends correct? Well, again, here's their argument. God is just and fair in all that he does. And because God is just and fair, he cannot overlook sin. He, he must punish sin. And because you are suffering, Job, it means that you have sinned. Now, is this true? Here's my answer. What the friends say is true, but it's not true for Job. Do you understand? What they say is true. God is fair and just. And therefore, God must punish sin. But where they go wrong is they assume he is suffering for his personal sin that he had done. In reality, the problem with Job's friends, here's fundamentally what the problem is with their argument. Not only do they assume wrongly about Job, but here's fundamentally the problem with their argument. It's right on the surface, but it has fundamental problems, and it's this. They have no place in their theology for innocent suffering. And, and furthermore, his friends do not understand grace. In 1989, Auschwitz survivor Harold Kushner wrote this best-selling book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Perhaps you've heard of it. And the book was written as his attempt to wrestle with sin and suffering in the world. And oftentimes, the question is asked, why do bad things, why does suffering happen to good people? Isn't that the question that we ask, right? We ask that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And as Christians, as Christians, we believe that in a way the premise is flawed, Bad things happen, we say, because no one is good. The real question, we say, should be why do good things, why do good things happen to bad people? But I'm not convinced the premise is flawed. Is there such a thing as good people? 
Let me rephrase it this way. Is there such a thing as innocent suffering? Let me ask you this. As you're thinking, was Job a sinner? Yes. Of course Job was a sinner. If he wasn't, then the rest of the Bible would not be true. Scripture interprets Scripture. What I'm saying is that God wants us to see something in the book of Job. He wants us to see a man who suffered and his suffering was not tied to a specific sin that he had done. It's where the friends miss the boat. And we see that at the very end of the book. They say, what does God say about Job's friends? They spoke wrongly about me, is what God says. In other words, Job, in a certain way, is an innocent sufferer. Job was not suffering because of his personal sins. And this concept, this idea of an innocent sufferer, it should be screaming in your ears right now. And you should, your mind should be having alarm bells go off. There is an innocent sufferer. Jesus entered our broken world our world filled with suffering, and he suffered in his body, in his humanity. He suffered in life and even greater in death. Was Jesus a sinner? No. He was innocent. He was truly innocent. Personally, he did nothing. He didn't have a sin nature. Bad things happened to a good person. And yet the irony is that Jesus suffered not because he was a sinner. He suffered because he was a savior. In other words, Jesus' suffering in life and on the cross is because of sin in the world. That's why he went. He didn't deserve the suffering. He didn't deserve the punishment. But on the cross, what happened is Jesus took your sin if you are a Christian. He took your sin that you deserve to suffer for. Jesus came to end sin and suffering. That's why he came. He came to end sin and suffering. Not, it started in this world and it will finish in the world to come. He took the suffering that you deserve because of your sin. And, and because of his friends, because Job's friends, they, they don't have this concept of an innocent sufferer. They don't have a cross in their theology. Because of that, they don't understand grace. They don't understand grace at all. 
I don't know if you like to read the comics. Occasionally, I like a few comics. And there is a Phoenix Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says to Charlie Brown. You just see Lucy talking to Charlie Brown. She says, Charlie Brown, there's one thing you're going to have to learn. You reap what you sow. You get out of life what you put into it. No more and no less. And then Snoopy is sort of off in the snide. Snoopy musters from the corner. I'd kind of like to think there's a little margin for error. (laughs) Job's friends take the position of Lucy. I mean, look at chapter 4, verse 8. According to what I have seen... Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Job, in other words, you deserve this suffering because you've plowed iniquity. So you're harvesting this suffering, Job. Listen to his words. Look over with me at chapter 5, verse 6. What Eliphaz says. He says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. You know what he's saying? He's saying suffering does not happen naturally. It happens because you, Job, caused it to be brought on you. You earned it. You deserve it. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it true that you reap what you sow? It is true that God has built into the fabric of our world this basic principle that you work hard, you do the right thing, and you will be rewarded. Yes, in general, that is true. But according to Snoopy, his friends left no margin for error. You see, we live in and with, by our default position from the fall. Just like the friends, we live with the default position of a merit-based mentality. It's how we live. It's how we operate. And I know this because if you want to succeed in life, what do you need to do? You need to pump up your resume. You need to have all of the qualifications, all the training, and the experience. To get into a good college, you need to perform. You need to have the grades. You need to have the great ACT score. This is how we live in the West. It's our culture. It's what we expect. I mean, what happens when we don't make the grade? When we don't have the resume? When we fail the test? These friends, these friends do not understand grace. They live by a system of do's and don'ts. 
They live by a system of performance. They live, in other words, we could say, by a system of law. But the reality is, the reality of it is, is God is not, listen, though God has set up this world in which generally, yes, you reap what you sow, the reality of it is, is God is not obligated to bless you or reward you at all. He is not obligated to do that. If he was, that would not be grace. Grace, in order for it to be grace, is under no obligation, or else it's not grace. And so the reality of it is, is we have blown it. We have sinned against God. Job did too. Job was not suffering because he had blown it for his personal sins, right? Suffering, he was suffering because God wanted to prove his character. Job was suffering because even when life doesn't work the way it's supposed to, the way we think it's going to turn out, by the laws of reaping and sowing, even when you don't get what you reap, God is gracious. He pours out his grace. And so I am so thankful, as Snoopy would say, for margin of error. I'm thankful for grace because without it, you and I would be blown to pieces by God's just and righteous wrath. It is true, as Job's friends say, about God that he is just and that all sin will be punished. But that doesn't include grace. Grace means that you get what you don't deserve. Grace is you and I, brothers and sisters, you and I, you know what we have received? We have received an innocent sufferer who made atonement in our place. So we rejoice. We rejoice and we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.